Let's pray. God, what an appropriate uh, song to sing to you as we now come to your word. You alone are our cornerstone. Our hope is found in you. We are constantly being tempted to put our hope in lesser things. And I pray, God, in this time, as we, as we sit in your word, as we, we ask that you would speak to us and remind our hearts that our hope is not found in anything that this world has to offer, but our hope is found in you. Thank you, God, for the privilege it is to be here together, both uh, in person and virtually. Thank you for the privilege it is, God, to worship you freely. Thank you for the privilege it is, God, to have your word and to have it in our native language and to be able to read it and understand it. And we ask that you would allow us to do that now. Not so that we gain a bunch of knowledge in our heads, God, but so that our hearts might be changed and turned towards you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning again. Good morning. That's good. Uh, We're in Mark today. Mark chapter 6. We're going to read verses 14 to 30. Mark 6, verses 14 through 30. Give you just a few moments to get there. We'll have it up on the screen as well. This is what it says. It says, King Herod heard of it. We're not exactly sure what it is. There's a lot of different potential options, but it's not really a big deal for what we're going to look at in the text. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Also, thanks be to God that this text fell this weekend and not next weekend on Family Sunday, because there have been a lot of questions from little kids about what this is, what's happening in this passage. Uh, the morning of October 7th, 2007, an engineer in his early 40s from North Carolina named Peter Brown came to the start line in Chicago's Grant Park 
of the Chicago Marathon. He lined up with 36,000 of his closest friends. He had been training all year for this marathon. It was his fifth, and he had actually hired a coach that year in hopes of breaking a three-hour time for the marathon. For those in here who are runners or who know marathons, that's moving. That's a, that's a pretty quick marathon for an amateur runner. Uh, the gun went off. He knew temperatures were forecast to be a little bit higher than usual. He wasn't too worried about that because he had been training all summer in the heat and humidity of North Carolina. At the halfway point of the marathon, mile 13 and change, uh, he was right on pace. One hour and 31 minutes. At mile 20, his legs started to feel a little bit heavy. At mile 23, though still on pace, they began to cramp so badly he had difficulty putting one leg in front of the other, but he gutted it out and continued running. Less than a mile from the finish, a race volunteer stepped into the, the Chicago Marathon's race and pulled him out of the race, seeing how woozy and stumbling and disoriented he was. No sooner had he sat down on the curb than he passed out and woke up in an ambulance on the way to the ER where he spent the night for dehydration and heat exhaustion. October 7th, 2007, the 30th running of the Chicago Marathon is infamous. October 7th, 2007 was the hottest October 7th ever recorded since they've been recording temperatures in the Chicagoland area. It reached 89 degrees that day. Anyone who is a runner knows, or I, anyone, I shouldn't say that so condescendingly, runners will tell you that you want like 50 degrees for a marathon. And, and those of us who are from the Midwest, we know that 89 in Chicago is very different than 89 in California because of the humidity. And that unexpected heat wave that day wreaked havoc on the Chicago Marathon. Over 300 people had to be taken away by ambulance. They ran out of Gatorade and water and cups at the aid stations along the route. Some of the later runners were actually picking up used cups off of the ground and reusing them with liquid that spectators were sharing with them. It was before COVID. 185 people spent the night in the ER. Some of them had body temperatures registering 107 degrees. That's not good. And, and one person actually died. Uh, I was there that day. Not running. <laughs> and even as a spectator, it was one of the more miserable experiences of my life. And as I was getting this message ready this week, I was thinking about that day and my experience and other people's experiences that day, and I couldn't help but seeing in the 2007 Chicago Marathon a really compelling metaphor for life. Because isn't that how life goes sometimes? All this preparation, all these plans, everything's set up perfectly, and it just goes sideways. There were thousands, there were tens of thousands of people there that day, like Peter Brown, who had spent months or years preparing, had bought tickets from all over the U.S. or all over the world, had bought hotel rooms, had the gear and the shoes and the hats and the glasses and the anti-chafing cream and whatever else you need to run 26.2 miles. They had carbo-loaded all week, which sounds amazing. They had tapered their training and they had made everything just right for that day 
And then it was a total disaster. It just went sideways. Many of us are familiar with the line from, I think his name is Robert Burns, Scottish poet, um, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. That marathon, that day was just a little picture of what happens to so many of us in life so many times. You get all these great plans, but it just goes sideways. About 20 years ago, a book came out written by uh, a local pastor, actually John Orberg, who was the pastor just down the road at Menlo Church for many years. Uh, the book that came out, I think it was 2002, that he wrote was called The Life You Always Wanted. Full disclosure, I have not read the book. <laughs> we own it. My wife has read it, and she would say that it, that it impacted her life. But I'm, I, I bring it up not to talk about the content of the book, simply the title. I find the title of that book so compelling. The Life You've Always Wanted because it speaks to one of the deepest longings of every human heart. We all have a picture of the life we want. We all have a picture of the type of life that we want. And even if it's not fully formed, even if it's not down to the zip code and the job title and the number of kids and the, the model Tesla, what, it's good, Teslas are cool. We at least have an idea of what we don't want life to look like. And yet, so often life goes sideways. And my fear, and we can, this, is a, this is a topic for a different sermon on a different day. We can discuss the details of this later. But my fear is that a lot of us come to Jesus Christ either explicitly expecting or implicitly expecting that by coming to him and following him with our lives, he is going to give us the life that we have always wanted. But here's the truth that we're going to sit in in the text that we're studying today. He may not. And there are a lot of people here in this sanctuary, there are a lot of people watching online who would be able to testify today that I chose to follow Jesus with my life and he has not given me the life I always wanted. In fact, in some ways, it might be harder. In some ways, it might actually be worse. I think we can be guilty of it, and I'm, I'm as guilty of anyone as anyone in my young and indistinguished, undistinguished preaching career of making grand statements about how coming to Jesus will give you the hope, joy, peace, and, and everything else that you've been longing for. And on one level, that is true, and it is, it, it, uh, it, it is true, and we need, to, we need to preach that, and we need to believe that, but we got to preach the other side of the coin as well, which is that there is a cost to following Jesus there's a cost to discipleship. And when we come to him, he does not promise us that we are going to get the life we always wanted. At least the life that we think that we have wanted. So we're continuing our series in Mark today. We're calling this series Let's Go because we, we believe that the gospel of Mark is a call to Christians to not just believe something in their head, not just have something change in their hearts, but to actually do something with their hands as well. We get in this passage that we, I just read, one of only two sections of the entire gospel that are not about Jesus. Both of those two passages are about John the Baptist. 
The first one comes at the very beginning of the gospel when Mark describes for us John's ministry in the wilderness baptizing. And the second one comes today when he talks about John's death. John, just, a precur- just as, a, as a reminder, he was, he was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's Jesus' cousin. He was to come before Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus, to call the people to repentance and to get the ground ready, to get the soil ready for the Messiah who was to arrive. What we find in John's story is a reminder to us that following Jesus may not give us the life that we have always wanted. And in this passage, we get another Mark and sandwich. If you were here a few weeks ago, you remember I talked about how Mark likes to do these things where he puts one narrative inside of another one and creates a sandwich. It's not something you get at the deli. It's something that the gospel writer of Mark puts in his, uh, in his gospel. We saw one with Jairus and the woman who was bleeding, remember? Talked about Jairus, then we had the woman who was bleeding, then we went back to Jairus' daughter. It doesn't look like it right up front, but we get the same thing in this passage because if you remember last week, part of what we talked about was the sending of Jesus' disciples out. He called the 12 to himself, sent them out two by two to do mighty works, cast out demons, uh, heal the sick, preach the good news. And then Mark tells us, it's a little bit hard to see because of the chapter breaks in the English Bible. Mark gives us this story, uh, really a flashback to the death of John the Baptist And then in verse 30, which really kind of goes with next week's sermon, but I've borrowed it for this week as well. We can cover it two weeks in a row. That's okay. He tells us that the disciples returned. And so what we have here is that Mark has inserted this this flashback to the death of John the Baptist in between the calling and sending out of the disciples and their return. And the question we need to ask ourselves before we get into the text is why? Why has Mark connected these two seemingly unrelated events? And here's what I believe he is doing. I think he is telling us in no uncertain terms that there is a cost to discipleship. Here are Jesus' 12 disciples. They are following him with their lives. He has called them to himself. He has sent them out to do mighty works, to, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to preach good news. They're having great success. And while that is happening, another disciple of Jesus Christ, another follower of Jesus Christ with his life, John the Baptist, is sitting in a prison somewhere waiting for his head to be taken off. Because sometimes following Jesus does not give us the life we've always wanted. And as we dig into this text, I want want us to see three things that it teaches us about how following Jesus may not actually be the path to ease, comfort, fun, and prosperity. The first one is this. Followers of Jesus are confusing. Got a couple chuckles. I thought I'd get more amens on that. I kind of want to amen myself. Followers of Jesus are confusing. Uh, let me show you what I mean by that. So okay, verse 14, we're introduced to King Herod. First two words of verse 14. Uh, king Herod was not actually a king. That just was kind of a common name that they would have called him back then. He was actually what's known as a tetrarch. He was the ruler of one quarter of the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great. So this is not Herod the Great. This is not the Herod who was king when Jesus was born, killed the babies in Bethlehem. This is one of his many sons whom he had with his 10 different wives. This is Herod Antipas. He's the Tetrarch, which means he and three of his brothers split up his dad's kingdom into four parts and he rules over it. Not really as a king though, he rules over it as a vassal of Rome. Jesus' reputation is spreading. He's heard about Jesus. And look at what we hear about the people's opinion and King Herod's opinion of Jesus in verses 14 to 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. 
Another said, he is a prophet like the one, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What are these verses telling us? They are telling us that people were confused about who Jesus was. They didn't get it. They didn't get who he was, and Herod was one of them. I love this. Herod is more willing to attribute to Jesus that he is the resurrection, the reincarnation of someone he murdered, than he is to actually say he might be who he says he is. So Herod is confused about Jesus. The people are confused about Jesus. And skip with me down to verse 20. It says, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So what do we see here again? Herod is not only confused about who Jesus is, he's confused about John. Now, John's jamming Herod up, and we're going to get to that in a few more minutes, but I think this is amazing. He's, he's calling Herod out, and Herod still thinks he's a holy and righteous man and wants to hear what he has to say, but he's perplexed by it because followers of Jesus are confusing. For those who don't know him, for those who are not following him, for those who have not met Jesus, his followers are confusing. I don't need to tell you, especially those of you who have kids or who are in school or were in school, that COVID has really messed up things as far as the school goes. Last year, uh, our oldest was in fifth grade. So she missed her last year as the like top dog in the elementary school. Uh, I don't know what they do at the end of fifth grade because she's our oldest. I, I'm assuming they have some kind of ceremony. We got another fifth grader this year, so we'll find out. Uh, but for last year, uh, some of the moms uh, put on a little graduation ceremony for some of the fifth graders in, in, in one of their front yards. And uh, our oldest was invited to go to that. And so I don't know how many kids it was, maybe, maybe 15 or so kids. Uh, some of them she knew, some of them her friends, some of them she didn't know. And they had a little party with a you know, water slide and stuff. Uh, and she told us this story when she got home and it has become like a, a running inside joke in our family since then. Uh, some, of the, some of the girls at that party, uh, some of the fifth graders were filming themselves on their phones doing synchronized dances. And my daughter asked them, well, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we're doing TikTok. And God bless my daughter. She goes, what is TikTok? Which tells you a lot about how we do social media in our house. And she said it was as if the whole party died and everyone stopped talking and everyone turned and looked at her. And she said, one of the girls came up to her and she didn't put her head in her hands, but she would have if it hadn't been COVID. And she goes, what do you do with your life? <laughs> and that is what the world is going to think of us if we are following the way of Jesus as we move through this life. Here, here, here's maybe what I should have made this point. People are going to think we're weird if we follow Jesus. And let me tell you, like, that's not what I'm looking for in life. I, I, I do not want people to think I am weird. But people are going to think we are weird if we are following Jesus with our life. That's not my idea of the life I have always wanted. In fact, I would say it this way. If, our, if we claim to be following Jesus with our lives, and our life, our, everything about our life makes sense, to our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates who would not call themselves Christians, then I think something's wrong. Because the call of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the way of discipleship is so counter to the stream of our culture and our world. We should look confusing. If, if, 
if the way we do our marriages and the way we parent and the way we do relationships, the way we spend our money and our time, the way we do vacations, if all of that makes sense to people who would not call themselves Christians, then we need to check what we are actually doing with our lives as far as it relates to being followers of Jesus Christ. Because our lives should confuse people who do not know the living God. Followers of Jesus are confusing. Here's the second thing I want us to see in this passage. Followers of Jesus are brave. Followers of Jesus are brave. Um, so uh, pick me up in verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. So what is that telling us? Here's the deal. John is not in prison because Herod was confused by him. He's not in prison because Herod was perplexed by him. John is in prison because he has been jamming Herod up. He is in prison because he has been speaking truth to power. John is in prison because he had the moral courage to speak to a king what he thought was wrong about the way that king was doing his life. Fake king, as we talked about, but we're just going to go with the title that the Bible gives us. John had moral courage. Now, what's this all about? So Herodias, Herod's wife, was actually his niece. It gets worse. She, she, was, she was the daughter of one of his half-brothers, and she actually had been married to another one of his half-brothers. But at some point, Herod and Herodias met and, and fell in love. And though they were both married to other people, divorced the people they were married to and got married to each other. And for someone who's like, well, what's the big deal with that? The big deal is that in the Mosaic law in Leviticus verses 18, or chapter 18, verse 16, chapter 20, verse 21, same rule comes down from God. He says, a man is not to take his brother's wife. It's just the way God designed it. It's just the rule that he set out. And so here is Herod. He has taken his brother's wife. And John is so sure about who he is accountable to that he is more willing, that he is willing, not more, he is willing to confront an earthly king in order to stand for the heavenly king. Because John has a moral code, because he has a moral code that he has built his life on, he had the moral courage to call out sin when he saw it. He was brave because he held God's law in higher regard than man's law. He held God's regard in higher regard than man's regard. Sorry, that wasn't a great way to put that, but you get what I'm saying. John was brave. He had moral courage. Uh, there was a preacher in the 1500s. His name was Hugh Latimer. He was in England. Uh, they say he was the greatest preacher of his era. How you can make that claim about someone in the 1500s in England, I have no idea. But I, apparently he was a really good preacher. Uh, he grew up as a Catholic. He converted to Protestantism. He became one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation in the country of England. Uh, he spoke against the abuses of the church. He spoke out against the abuses of the government. And he ended up becoming a martyr. He was burned at the stake for the same things that he was saying and he was doing. Legend has it, and I just want to say legend has it. This is probably, I mean, there's probably some truth to it, but it makes for a really good preaching illustration. Legend has it that he was invited one time to come and preach in front of King Henry VIII. 
For those of you who know your history, you know that King Henry VIII, uh, not kind of a kind, gentle, you know, heartwarming individual. Apparently, God gave Hugh Latimer a message that he did not believe the King of England was going to appreciate. And this is what legend has it, he says, as he opened that sermon, as he was preaching before King Henry VIII. He spoke to himself. He said, Latimer, Latimer. I'm going to start calling myself Anderson. Anderson, Anderson. Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? He then paused and continued. Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account of yourself. Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. Yeah. Clap. Most of us are not going to have the opportunity to speak before kings or presidents or CEOs or people with that kind of influence and authority. But every one of us, day in and day out, have the opportunity to act and speak with bravery, to act and speak with moral courage. When someone at lunch tells a racist joke, do we laugh with everybody else or do we not? And maybe do we humbly and kindly and gently say, I actually don't think that's funny. And here's why. When our boss or our manager or our teammates at work ask explicitly or <laughs> implicitly, for us to do something that is against company policy, that is not in the best interest for our, of our clients, or is just simply against the rules, but no one will ever know about it. Do we just count it up, chalk it up as the cost of doing business? Or do we make clear to them that we are not gonna act in that way, even if it costs us our position or our job? When our kids are reading us the riot act and telling us all the things they hate about us, because of the rules and the, the ways that we are raising them. Do we just cave and give them what they want in the name of peace? Or do we hold our ground knowing that we believe God has given us what is best for them? And even if they can't see it now, we are going to act with bravery because it is what's going to be best for them in the long run. We all have opportunities day in and day out to act with moral courage, and we can do it because we are accountable to a higher power than anything here on this earth. You are not ultimately accountable to your friends. You are accountable to God. You are not ultimately accountable to your boss. You are ultimately accountable to God. And if you lose your job over it, so be it. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. You are ultimately not accountable to your kids, not even to your spouse, more so than you are accountable to God. We can be brave. If you're here today and you're like, I'm not a very brave person. I'm like, like come on in, the water's fine. Jo welcome to the club. We can have a bravery. For those of us who are following Jesus Christ, we can have a moral courage because we have his spirit living inside of us. And we have, a, we have, we have his word that we stand on. And we know that this life, I'm getting ahead of myself in this sermon, there is more to come than what we have here. 
And our primary allegiance, our primary accountability, our primary responsibility is to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who we will all stand before one day and give an account. And so what can man do to us? Followers of Jesus are confusing. And look, when we act like that, when you act with moral courage, when you act brave like that, people are not going to like you. That's not going to give you the life you always wanted. Followers of Jesus are confusing. Followers of Jesus are brave. And then finally, followers of Jesus may not get what they want. Followers of Jesus may not get what we want, what they want, excuse me, (laughs) what we want. Uh, So here it is. So, So Herod's having this party. All the top officials, all the, all the big wigs, all the big shots in his kingdom are there. Uh, Herodias' daughter comes in to dance. This would have been his stepdaughter, not his daughter. Now, uh, let's just pause here for two seconds for just a little bit of exegesis. Historically, um, artists in particular have taken this occasion, the dancing of Herodias' daughter, and taking it in a very debauched direction. It's possible. It's possible. The text doesn't speak to it. But know this. When, uh, when Mark calls her a girl in verse 22, it's the same word that he uses for girl in chapter 5 when he's talking about Jairus' daughter. So it could be a 21-year-old woman. could be a 12-year-old girl who, who came in and did her ballet recital. Okay? Either way. She comes in and she dances before the king and his people. And he's so impressed He makes this this bold statement, basically, ask me for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Now, now, first of all, he's not really a king. He couldn't have ever given her half of his kingdom. So scholars are like, he offered her something he couldn't do anyway. But that just kind of talks about the character of the the guy that we're dealing with. But, uh, you know, if it is, look, if it was her 12-year-old daughter who did her ballet recital, he's probably thinking along the lines of like a pony. Ask me for a pony and I'll give it to you because that was so good. But, But this girl's not asking for a pony. She goes and talks to her mom. Her mom says, I want John the, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she goes to Herod and says, I want, I want John the Baptist's head on the platter. And Herod, though he didn't want to, to appease the crowd and to save face, uh, has John's head taken off and brought in and displayed for all to see. Probably not the life that John the Baptist had said he had always wanted. Now, this is what we got to know about John the Baptist. In Mark 11, 11, Mark, excuse me, Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says of John the Baptist, he says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Can you imagine, can you imagine if Jesus showed up on the spot right here today? That would, first of all, that would be amazing. And can you imagine if he got up here and he said, truly, truly, I say to you, there has been no one born among women that is greater than Pastor Gary. Suspend your disbelief. Suspend your disbelief. What would you expect my life is going to look like from that point forward? Pretty awesome. If, if Jesus is like, this is the greatest person that has ever been born, we're going to expect that they have a pretty sweet life. After he says that about John the Baptist, I'm like, we would have expected that John the Baptist uh, took over leadership of an enormous denomination in Jerusalem and he got a book deal and became a, a best Jerusalem Times number one best-selling author. And he made a killing on the Christian conference circuit giving speeches. And he bought a, a ranch outside of town. And like the greatest ever born of woman is John the Baptist. We would have expected he gets the life he's always wanted. 
But what does he actually get? At 31 or 32 years old, he gets his head taken off. And towards the end, John the Baptist's life is so far from the life that he had always wanted, he begins to doubt that Jesus is actually who he says he is. I mean, take some, take heart in that. Listen, listen to this. In Mark 1, 7, uh, as he's preaching, John the Baptist says about Jesus, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In the Gospel of John 129, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mark tells us in his gospel at the beginning when, when, Mark, uh, when John baptized Jesus, God the Father spoke audibly, said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit of God visibly descended on Jesus. The heavens opened up. John the Baptist witnessed all of that. And fast forward one, maybe two years at most, and John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. And Mark doesn't record this, but both Matthew and Luke do. Matthew eleven three, John's disciples come to Jesus while John is in prison and they say, John has a message for you. He wants to know, are you the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Why? Because John's sitting there in prison and he is like, this is not the life that I always wanted. In fact, it is so far away from the life that I always wanted. I am not sure Jesus is who he says he is. I mean, come on. Does that not hit home for someone this morning? Like this is so far from what I expected. When, when, I, when I heard about joy and peace and health and wealth and prosperity, I'm not even sure Jesus is who he says he is. The, 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 the hard truth, and I know I'm kind of harping on this, but it's the point of the sermon that we got to sit in is that following Jesus with our lives does not mean we are going to get the life we've always wanted. Following Jesus does not mean we will get what we want. Over these last couple months, I've been listening to a podcast. Uh, it's a podcast about the church and church leadership and the challenges and the difficulties um, and the ways, the ways it can, the, the thousands of ways it can go sideways in a church. And one of the things they drew out in the last, uh, one of the last podcasts was uh, they talked about, and I thought this was so good, how, how often in the church we're looking for shortcuts. How often we're looking for shortcuts because, because it takes a long time to wait for God to do what only God can do. And so we're always trying to find faster ways to, to, to think outside the box and to add things on and to try and get there faster than God is taking us there. And they had Andy Crouch on, and he's a, just a fantastic Christian author, a genius of a man, and I think a real blessing to the church. And he said something. I was jogging, and I had to stop jogging and pull out my phone and keep rewinding the podcast so I could take the quote down. And this is the gist of it. He said, it is so hard for us to believe that the Spirit and the Word are enough. It is so hard for us to believe that the spirit and the word are enough. And that is not only true in the church, it is true in each of our lives. It is hard to believe that the spirit and the word are enough. Listen to me. The way of Jesus is a long, slow, tedious, and difficult path. The, the, a life devoted to following Jesus, you are, you are almost guaranteeing yourself a life of difficulty, 
of struggle, of anonymity, of constantly feeling like you're just failing, flailing and failing. It is hard, it is, it is costly, and it is difficult. But here's the thing. I think we often get the journey and the destination mixed up. L listen, I want this to be the destination. I want this life to be good and fun and easy and comfortable. I want to live my best life now. I'm not speaking, I'm not speaking hypothetically. Like this is Gary talking to you. I want this to be it. But this is not it. This is not the destination. This is simply the journey. If this is the destination, if this is our only shot at life, if after this it's over and we return to dust and we no longer exist, if this is our one shot and we do not get good things in this life, then we should despair. But if it is not, if this is not the destination but the journey, if this is the training ground, if this is the season of preparation, if this is the time that we are getting ready for the destination, then if we do not get good things in this life, we can still walk through it as weirdos with moral courage and not getting what we want because we know that this is not the final say. This is not the destination. This is the journey. May we not get them confused. We can get up every day as followers of Jesus Christ, Christ and walk through a life that does not look the way we had hoped or dreamed or imagined because we know this is not the last say. There is another life awaiting us. And I guarantee it's the life you've always wanted. So as, as we wrap this up, can we just recognize John's death points to Jesus' death. There are so many parallels. We don't have time to go over it because we're running out of time anyway. But just this, this weak vassal ruler who's influenced by the crowd, this righteous person who they're drawn to, they don't want to kill them, but they do. I just, John's, Mark is preparing us for Jesus' death in the way that he talks about the way that John died. But there's another death that he is preparing us for, and that is our own. John's death doesn't just point to Jesus' death. It points to our death. And listen to me. We give a lot of lip service in the church to dying to ourselves. But when it comes time to actually die to ourselves, there's not a lot of people left hanging out. This is the journey. It is not the destination. And the tighter we hold on to the idea of the life we have always wanted, I can virtually guarantee we will never experience the life we have always wanted. But when we open our hands, when we loosen our grip on what we think we want life to be and to go like and to look like, that is when we are going to find that we actually can catch a vision for the true life that we have always wanted. In God's power, may we have the courage to trust him not only with our life, but to trust him with our death, both our figurative death and our literal death. 
And in doing so, begin to live toward the life we have always wanted. It's not circumstances. It's a person. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it's not always sugar-coated, happy. Um, things are going to be amazing because that's not the life that you have called us to live. God, I pray that no one would be discouraged by today's message. I pray that people wouldn't leave saying, that was depressing. I can imagine someone being here who's not a follower of Jesus, God, being like, I'm not sure I want to sign up for that. But we believe that your spirit spirit works through your word. We believe that your spirit moves even in times like this. And so I pray, God, that as we respond to you in worship now, that you would move in our hearts to remind us that you are a good, good father and that you delight to give good gifts to your children. And sometimes we don't feel like, we don't feel that. Sometimes, God, we want to say, are you the one or should we look for another? Remind our hearts this morning, God, that you are the one. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to respond uh, with some worship. And this is a time uh, not only to sing to God, but to do any business with God that you feel like you might need to coming out of this sermon. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been wrestling with, my life does not look the way I've wanted to. This is not the life I've always wanted. I would say talk to God about that right now. I would say ask him. Like God's word gives us the freedom to say what John the Baptist said. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? And trust that he will respond and show you that he is the one. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you have been so compelled about this amazing picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus that you would like to make that decision this morning, uh, there is no better time than now. And myself, one of the elders, one of our staff, any of our ministry leaders would love to talk to you after the service about what that means and what that looks like. Let's turn our hearts now again in worship and I'll come back up and close this out with the benediction. give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you, every breath that I take,
caveat every sermon that I preach, but um, I feel led to in this moment. Following Jesus is hard, but it's also amazing. And, and I just don't want, I don't know how long God will allow me or call me to preach or what. I just, I want five, 10, 15 years from now, I don't want anyone to ever come to me and be like, you made it sound like it was just gonna be amazing and this has been really hard. I would rather have someone come to me and say, you told me it was gonna be hard and it has been hard, but it's also been amazing. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our savior comes, and then forever. Amen. Amen. You're loved and you're prayed for and you're sent.